0: Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening. I want to mention how grateful I am to those of you who have subscribed via Patreon. Your financial support is both incredibly encouraging and necessary in making this podcast possible. If you value this podcast and would like to support it, you can subscribe as well, and I'll include a link to our Patreon in the show notes. But also a simple review with one positive word and five stars on the app that you use to listen is extremely helpful in getting the word out and helping the ideas that we discuss here filter out into the world of ideas through those algorithmic gatekeepers it takes less than a minute to leave a review but the impact is immense so it may be one of the most efficient ways to do something ecologically beneficial this year and i really thank you for doing that the sponsor for this episode is centralis wines centralis is an ecological winery that I started to realize my vision of a wine world in which humans are the students and servants of the non-human world, regenerating and protecting the vitality of ecosystems and promoting the diversity of life through wines that uniquely and deliciously reflect local abundance. You can learn more, sign up for the wine club or email list, and buy wines at centraliswine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. My guest for this episode is Randall Graham. If you haven't heard of him, Randall was New California about 20 years before the wave of New California winemakers. Young winemakers now who have never heard of him are just quote-unquote discovering and trying things that he did in the 1990s. Alternative packaging? Randall was one of the first advocates in America for the screw cap and staged the funeral for the cork at Grand Central Station in New York City in 2002. This elaborate event included a Buick hearse, a casket with a full-size corpse made of corks, and a eulogy by Jancis Robinson. Alternative and obscure grape varieties in the U.S.? Randall was the original Rone Ranger and appeared on the cover of Wine Spectator dressed as the Lone Ranger with a horse in 1989. With his winery, Bonnie Doon, he helped introduce and popularize the Rhone varieties of grapes that we take for granted now. At its height, Bonnie Doon was one of the largest wineries in America. In 1991, an asteroid was named Rhone Ranger in his honor. In addition to crafting some other big brands like Big House Red and Cardinal Zinn, He continues to promote obscure and overlooked grape varieties, as you'll hear in this interview. Randall was an early proponent of ingredient labeling on wine bottles, which I'm a big proponent of as well. And he was a big proponent and early proponent of biodynamic farming. In 1994, he was proclaimed the Wine and Spirits Professional of the Year by the James Beard Foundation. And in 2010, the Culinary Institute of America inducted him into the Vintners Hall of Fame. In addition to being a very entertaining disruptor for the wine industry, Randall is an incredibly thoughtful winemaker and writer, and one of his guiding principles has been the pursuit of terroir. In this interview, we dig into terroir and wines of place, attempting to determine if it is actually a helpful or beneficial concept, or if it is even real. Randall explains how he is testing a few new theories about terroir at his estate vineyard project, Pope Le Shum, in San Juan Bautista, where he's growing myriad varieties of grapes, many from seed, and we discuss his partnership with Gallo on the Language of Yes project. I hope this will make you want to learn more about Randall Graham. Enjoy, Randall. Welcome. Thanks so much for doing this.
1: My pleasure, Adam.
0: Randall, it's it's a it's a real pleasure in the sense that you, you're one of those people who I feel like it's really appropriate to say you're you've probably forgotten more than I'll ever know about wine. Um, I got a late start and, and uh, realized I loved it way too late in life to catch up to uh, the amazing things that you're doing. It's funny how things that i embarked upon thinking that I was doing, uh, you know, just following my own ideals. It sounds like things that you've done, ingredients labeling being one of those things where I'm, you know, sort of built my wine brand on transparency and ingredients labeling and just being like radically honest about that to avoid things like natural washing and uh, and this is something you've been promoting for quite a while um and I'm, I'm sure there's many other things like that but rather than have you you know talk about uh your whole biography uh, i'm sure it'll come up as we talk and we'll get to some of the stuff that you're more recently working on, I, I kind of want to jump into just some big ideas that I think influence uh, what you do and have been doing, uh, specifically terroir. And I maybe just because this is the Organic Wine Podcast, I'll just start by asking how important um, to terroir is this idea of, of uh, how, can I, how do I put it, growing without sprays or irrigation?
1: Well, that's sort of a minimum um, that would be a minimum. I mean, terroir is this magical quality that exists in some wines to a greater extent. I, it's really a continuum, maybe not so much an absolute yay or nay, but there's a continuum really of the level of intervention of the winemaker or the vineyardist to to, to drive a certain outcome. And then, then, then there's sort of the personality, the will of the land itself or the... Um, Quality or the character of the land that it asserts itself to, to a greater or lesser extent. So it's really kind of a dynamic tension between the wine maker or the wine, wine grower and the place where the grapes are, are grown.
0: Yeah, was, actually, that was a question I had for you, which was, you know, to what extent do you see human culture being part of terroir? You know, and how do you how do you draw that line too? Once yeah, they it's, go a, down that path.
1: it's a moving target, I think. And it's, it's a paradox because you can define terroir in a sense as that which is eternal, that it exists above and beyond the touch of, of a human being, that which the human being doesn't is not a part of. On the other hand, the human being is definitely a part of it. Um, the, the human being is the discoverer, the amplifier, the champion of terroir. to Mm -hmm. to the extent that he or she understands it.
0: Is there any concern that it stems from a sense of separation from nature? Because I have this sense that sometimes terroir is spoken of in the same way. The ideas are in a a way similar to the idea of natural wine in that it it always sounds good, but when you look at it closely, it, it becomes sort of meaningless because wine doesn't exist outside of human culture and then you have this attempt of both of these terms to sort of remove humans from this experience and and sort of talk about it as this objective thing that we just merely you know can stand in the way of at 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 worse or you know stand out of the way of at best and you know to me i i feel like our our disconnect from nature is a big ecological issue I mean it has a lot of downstream negative effects and, I'm, and I worry that terroir might have that implication as well in the minds of many people can you talk about that at all
1: well again I got kind of a paradox I mean terroir is I mean that element of the natural I mean there's it's it's the imprint of the soil or the imprint of the site which is the natural world and in other words it 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 gives an element to a wine that would otherwise be cerebral and really just the hand of the winemaker, Uh, you know, a a technical wine, you know, you can tell the difference between a wine that is made and a wine that is sort of cultivated, if you will, you know, where, whereas the wine, you know, when the winemaker determines has the strong stylistic hand on the scale, that's what's one style of wine. And at a certain, you know, those wines are, could be flawless. They could be technically correct, but they're often lacking in soul. You know, that's not a very scientific term of course. <laughs> um, but wines, yeah, I, wines of place have what well, the way I think about it. And maybe this is fuzzy, a fuzzy concept as most of my concepts are as yeah. kind of, um, I think of terroir as a dimensionality that is that a wine might possess that would otherwise be lacking. And that's kind of my critique of many New World wines, is they, they lack this kind of dimensionality. Um, and the dimensionality I think comes from the imprint of the soil. If there's a strong quality of this of the site itself, certain certain terroirs I think are more expressive than others, you know, not all terroirs are created equal, not all terroirs are equally expressive, but some are strong and the strong ones um, leave leave an impression. Um, And I think, again, circling back to your idea, in a sense, they kind of connect us to the natural world in a a way. Mm. Us, we dirt eaters, you as children, um, I think we we some of us yearn for the taste of dirt um, on some level. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I, I definitely get that. I I definitely ate dirt <laughs> as a child on a dare, and I still <laughs> think I I eat a good bit of dirt uh, unknowingly um, or knowingly because I just pull stuff out of the garden and eat it. Um, you know, and figure that I'm getting some good microbiology. Uh, <laughs> although I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> to <Yes>. anybody, <laughs> um, <laughs> wash your veggies. Um, but I, do you think that there are actually, uh, and I, I'll use the word superior terroirs, or do you think that we just haven't figured out how to translate it, how to how to work with that specific space yet?
1: Well, a strong terroir, a great terroir. It does two things. I mean, it has a personality, but the personality. The other thing that does is it solves the vine's problems most of the time. In other words, it's a it's a unique site that lends the plant a degree of homeostasis that conduces to homeostasis. So it's kind of like the um, um, three bears paradigm where, you know, not too hot, not too cold, um, just right. Um, you know, the soil's not too deep. It's not too shallow. It's not too fertile. It's not too infertile. Um, it has the right amount of water holding capacity. So if it rains, it drains well. If it doesn't rain, it holds water. You know, it's kind of this one size fits well, not one size fits all, but this, this soil that, or this profile that, as I said, conduces to homeostasis most of the time without, yeah, I... the, without the intervention of a human being. I mean, because the, the whole point right. is when you start irrigating and manipulating the soil, you lose that, that quality of the uniqueness of the site.
0: Right. And to what extent do you think that maybe, def- I, I guess what I was getting at a little bit um, you know, I think, I mean, you did a good job of answering it from that perspective. I guess I would, just wanted to add in a layer of, you know, maybe a site doesn't ha- express great terroir because we're growing the wrong fruit. Like if we're trying to grow grapes in certain areas, it may be, you know, for example, I use prickly pears and would I would make a strong argument that, you know, soon parts of California would be much better for growing prickly pears than grapes. And that might better express a terroir because of its ability to just be stuck in the ground and thrive there versus grapes which essentially need life support systems pretty much uh anywhere you know without (laughs) not anywhere but in many more places than perhaps were once the case
1: Correct. I mean, or you could talk about trying to grow Pinot Noir in Fresno, which is... Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's exactly what
0: I mean. Like you start with just like maybe it's the wrong variety grown there and you learn that over time. But then maybe it's you've actually just in the whole wrong type of plant for that. You know, if you're in Texas, maybe it's better to make mesquite wine, for example, um, or something like that. Uh, is that, I mean, do you, how does your definition of wine expand to include non-grape stuff? I mean, do you think there's a need to do that?
1: You know, honestly, Adam, I have not given it much of a second thought. Um, I've, I've got, my mind is occupied with grape stuff. So.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. Uh, I, I, I,
1: There are fruits and vegetables that do, I think, do express terroir. Certainly onion, all kinds of vegetables. Vegetables certainly do. And fruits, too, certainly.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. That's funny. I had a tomato wine recently that was just as clear as water and tasted like tomatoes uh, with alcohol. Um, It was very (laughs) interesting. Um, It was actually kind of good. You know, if you just didn't expect what you'd normally expect from alcohol experiences yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess I, 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 I asked these questions because I you know absolutely was at one point just fully immersed in grapes and then you know living in Southern California seeing you know uh, in many cases how poorly grapes would do, especially if you eliminated the possibility of irrigation. And then beginning to have a sort of dawning ecological awareness of how much stuff is used to, um, you know, enable vinifera to grow in the new world where it didn't evolve and isn't isn't uh, you know it has to be grown on rootstock and has to be sprayed with fungicides because it's just not resistant. It's just not evolved to our climate and our our conditions and. So I started thinking, well, like, if I stepped out of the idea of grapes and expanded that idea then, you know, and, and used this ecological sort of baseline of no spray, no irrigation, then, you know, I, I would be forced to open up the possibilities to other things. And it just sort of took me in that direction. So I guess I guess that's where I was curious about if you delved in with that, like, or with herbs, you know, some people do infusions or things like that. Do you think that muddies terroir? Like, if you're... Um, infusing for example a wine with with the local garrigue for example
1: which i have done in, uh-huh. various,
0: in various ways um,
1: both by adding rocks to my cuvées and by <laughs> actually adding honey that's been infused with yeah uh, but I you know it, I, I agreed it does obscure terroir and again the conventions are somewhat um, arbitrary and just sort of agreed upon by, by, by usage. And there's, you know, who's to say what is, you know, is oak a deformer of terroir? You know, some people, myself included would say, yes, it is. Um, yeah. Whereas it's normative for, for most, for most winemakers, yeah. certainly.
0: Right. Right. Well, I mean, and maybe it depends on where you live. If you live near an oak forest, maybe it's an expression of it versus, you know, an, a, a, something that obscures it if that's where you're getting your oak you know from the surrounding environment um, that, but I guess maybe that leads me to another thing that will sort of give us an opportunity to talk about something that you're up to which is in the in the concept of terroir how important is diversity both in genetics and biology in in a vineyard to that idea And and what have you been learning about that?
1: It's absolutely crucial. It's absolutely crucial from an ecological standpoint, but also from an aesthetic standpoint. Um, If you want to create a sense of movement in a wine or play in a wine, those are pretty abstract ideas. Um, I mean, one of the things is you, or this kind of shimmery effect, if, if you will, you have to be careful not to create flavors that are so dominant and mono chromatic. um, You want to create this kind of um, movement, if you will, of color or flavor. And I think one of the ways you can achieve that is through small differences in um, flavor components, which probably can be achieved through differences in biotypes or clones. You you certainly don't want a single monoclonal vineyard to express their war. Um, and then I guess the question is what happens if you take that to like a crazy extreme and, um, (laughs) make every vine genetically distinctive from every other one. So there's a total uh, effacement of varietal characteristics. What happens then? So either something, either something really interesting happens or it doesn't. And I'm going to find out in about four or five years maybe 6 6 or 7 years but i'm going to find, i'm going to get to the bottom of it
0: <laughs> can you talk about how you're doing that what you're doing to, to get to the bottom of it
1: well i'm i'm sort of playing a bit of a mind game which is to say if you wanted to express purely terroir what well, how would you go about doing it it's not obvious how you would, how you would do it the first question is what do you plant you plant, do you plant grapes? I guess to your point, do you plant grapes or do you plant something else? And if you plant grapes, well, which variety do you plant? So the, the idea is whatever you think you're going to grow, there's probably something that's a better fit to, for your site than what you've thought of. So you're not going to get it exactly right. Um, so in light of that, what do you do? So the thought is maybe give up in, instead of trying to get find exactly the precise grape variety to grow on your site basically say I'm thinking of the grape not as a not trying to emphasize the varietal characteristics, but I'm thinking of it as a carrier of soil characteristics. How can I make a wine that will be a good conduit for the expression of soil character? And the conclusion I've reached tentatively is that a total effacement of varietal character may be in a sense kind of a, a neutral, a neutral palate Relatively neutral palette. I mean, you still want some flavor interest in the wine, but a relatively neutral um, varietal mix can enable a more articulate expression of soil characteristics. So it's a gestalt problem. By allowing, by, by pushing one set of flavor components to, to, the, to the rear, you're allowing another set of flavor elements to kind of emerge. In the foreground. Yeah. Anyway, and, the, you know, there's evidence of this. If you look at, uh, for example, the Swiss wine, the Swiss grape Chasselas, which is uh-huh. literally the Switzerland of grapes, it's neutral, it's totally neutral or largely neutral. Um, yeah. But in the strong um, glacial terroir, where you have a lot of mineral com- elements, um, the wine makes it is a brilliant wine. You've got um, Listan Negro in the Canary Islands grown on volcanic soils. Again, miserable grape on its own, fairly <laughs> neutral, but in strong, allowed to express strong soil characteristics, it makes a totally brilliant wine. So, and in other words, if you have a strong enough terroir, I think you could argue you could probably grow a bunch of different things and still produce. Uh, Even maybe Thompson Seedless, probably everything (laughs) short of Thompson, Thompson, everything short of Thompson would produce a really interesting wine. (laughs)
0: Uh, That's great. Um, Yeah, that we would have to change its name to something French, right? Um, Well, I mean, you say that, you say, you know, that uh, monoclonal... I mean, the challenge to this idea of avoiding monoclonal as a way to express terroir is, is somewhere like Burgundy, where it seems like it's the epicenter for terroir, and it comes down to like you know single clone of single Pinot Noir species. You know, in well, it's
1: a... not. It's not though. The great vineyards in Burgundy are are multiple clones, and they're 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 planted through sélection Massal. so they they definitely avoid monoclonal plantings. That okay. monoclonal plantings were done in the 70s and 80s to, to disastrous result. <laughs> it, it kind and, of comes back to uh, uh, selection massal.
0: And but you're taking even this much further than uh, multiclones. You're you're planting from seed. If I'm not mistaken, is that correct? Correct,
1: correct, yes.
0: And not specific crosses, not interspecific crosses, but just the seeds that would form from you know, the clusters of a of a uh, what what's the word I'm looking for? Um, wow, what what is the word? The <laughs> all I can think of is hetero and homo.
1: Um, um, well, you know, in in fact, Adam, I'm doing two different things. I'm doing self crosses, which are, as the name suggests, the plant pollinates itself, and those are right. sort of similar to the similar to the parent. Variety. But the other thing I'm doing for the for the larger terroir expression, I'm actually crossing two distinctive lineages. So it's actually deliberate uh, pollination. So there's got it. Each plant is different genetically. They have the same parents, but they're they're all siblings of one another. They're not um, they're not identical. Uh, they're but they're they're related.
0: So are you? conducting this in a way like a a traditional grape breeding vineyard would do where you are starting seeds in pots and then transferring them to the vineyard at, at high density and waiting for them to exhibit characteristics like whether they actually you know, produce fruit and things like that and then weeding out the ones that are failures
1: that's what i've been doing so far i'm kind of thinking to change my Strategy: um, The self crosses are going to be significantly less fertile and more, and significantly right. more problematic than the proper crosses. The proper crosses will all be largely, probably mostly, um, um, fertile. Yeah, or, or fruitful. Um, right. So I think I have greater luck, maybe, just planting them out directly in the field rather than going through the intermediate step of waiting to see what they do because that that will take another four three or four or five years so time tick yeah. tock um we kind of kind of get the show on the road you know the can other you... thing you can do is yeah. you can you can plant them out and if they don't work out you can graft graft over onto some you know the ones that you do like so there is, there is an argument to be made to just plant them planting them directly out in the field once they're significant or sizable enough um scale enough.
0: so is there any place do. in on the property where you're just casting seeds like putting a whole bunch of press leavings out to see what sprouts up and to sort of leave it to you know leave it to the wine gods to see what happens no no it's all very <laughs> intentional <laughs> okay intentional. just curious
1: i mean yeah occasionally the random seedling pops up in the, in the pumice pile but um, right not Not that many, and not that interesting by and large,
0: right, right, well, to what extent is I mean here we're we're talking about terroir and expressing a place, and we're we're talking about um, varieties that come from another continent. Do you think it's important to have some native genetics oh. if you're really going to talk about the terroir of a place?
1: mm maybe but i think you you run into all kinds of problems i mean sometimes the natives are are not that interesting organoleptically um sometimes the natives depending on you know are are adapted to growing in riverbeds and you just don't happen to have any river riverbeds nearby um you know a lot of this is is a cultural construct i mean we wine itself is a cultural construct i mean you know, there's conventions about wine, we like wine dry, we like wine, you know, that's 12 to 14% alcohol, we like wines that are not screaming in volatile acidity. I and mean, a lot of these things are, you know, just cultural norms that we've grown to accept. So if somebody comes along and proposes something just totally crazy, like, you know, whether it's a pet hat or something like that, it, it takes a little time to adjust. Um, for that to become normative if, if, it, if it does.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I guess I, I, I guess I'm just getting at more this sense of like, you know, uh, presumably Europe did a process of finding local things and working with them for thousands of years until they had something good. And, um, you know, I, I, just wondered if you thought maybe we should be doing the same thing in a well. In a sense the, to find
1: most it. of the, most of the evolution, wines evolution was basically trying to find grapes that, that produced lots of grapes that, that would fill, give you calories so you could stay warm and not die of of um, heat or of, of, of um, cold, right. Uh, so, so there wasn't the selects you know this was not the selection of the wine spectator i mean this was selection of you know, what's going to give you the most calories and enable abundance you live, live yeah live the longest i mean it's kind of the original paleo wine diet if you will right
0: <laughs> i'd love, love to live on that i think i do live on that to a certain extent <laughs> <laughs> so and and what is the project that where you're doing that what is that called
1: the, the name of the vineyard is called Popolishum, and it's that in, is Shum. Uh, okay. San Juan Batista, which is a tiny little town in uh, San Benito County, known for its beautiful mission and sort of the epi- earthquake epicenter. I mean, the property itself bound is bounded by the San Andreas Fault on one side, so All right. it's quite exciting.
0: Does that make those soils very diverse, like exactly. small areas. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So we have a very, extremely heterogeneous selection of soil types, um, including you know some really interesting ones and some less interesting ones. But um, you know, I had a, a geologist come out. We were at one point thinking to apply for a viticultural uh, appellation. I what they're called in California.
0: Oh yeah, like an AVA.
1: AVA, and the geologist said, "You know, I've I've processed a bunch of these applications, or I've, I've submitted a bunch of these applications. Most of the time, you know, there isn't really a distinctive quality to the area, but you you've got one. You really have one here. I mean, this really is a totally, utterly distinctive terroir or terroir oh. site.
0: Yeah." I love that. I love that the the diversity. There's diverse geology, even, <laughs> not just uh, biology and genetics as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's that's fantastic. Um, this isn't the only thing you're talking about. the The only thing that you're working on, though, you're you're um you're also doing a, a kind of a cool project that I think is a play on Languedoc. Is that right? A play exactly.
1: On the... Yeah, the language of yes. And this oh, is okay. a... <laughs> nice my unexpected um, collaboration between Gallo and myself you know who who, who, who knew who, who could expect you know no one expects the Spanish Inquisition or Randall and Gallo to to gang up uh, but anyways this is a kind of a re-examination of southern French varieties and winemaking styles and especially in cool Cool climate site. so it's kind of revisiting sort of sort of Randall's greatest hits, but it kind of with a new, with a new light, a new focus. So mm. that's been r- rather exciting, and we're also introducing some new grape varieties to the world. Um, one, of course, being Tibur, Tibourin. If you're right. a wine freak, you, you probably already know Tiburin. <clears throat> but if not, you probably don't. So. It, <laughs> I think it's one of the grapes of the future, at least of my future, that's for sure.
0: So I understand it, it's uh, It's it got an Italian name that's different, is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's grown in Liguria under the name of <clears throat> Rosese di Dolce Aqua.
0: I, I just want to go back, I, I thought of something again with Pope Shum. Um When will you have wines from that? Like, What has that process been like? Has it it sounds like it's a slower process from the way that you're doing it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I actually now have wines from Popolishum made from, if you will, conventional grape varieties, you know, known named grapes like Grenache Blanc and Grenache Gris. Okay. And, and Rouquet and Pinot Noir.
0: And are I, they all separate bottlings, or is that a blend that you're talking about?
1: The Grenache Blanc and Gris are a, is, is a blend. Okay. Um, the TGB in its infinite wisdom still doesn't quite understand that Grenache Gris exists in California. So it doesn't, doesn't recognize <laughs> that. Yeah.
0: Oh, wait. Have you tried to label Tiburon yet?
1: Actually, amazingly, Gallo, my friends at Gallo were able to put that through the T D P like in, in picoseconds. They've got, to, <laughs> they have ways. They have their ways. This is
0: the nice thing of working with Gallo, I guess. You should yeah. get quite a, you should, Take care of a lot of other housekeeping chores while you've got that partnership going.
1: Exactly. If you want something done promptly, they they have the <laughs> human power to do it very, very efficiently. Uh, it's
0: quite well, a- and you've, extraordinary. You've worked with, uh, you've made some fruit line, wines uh, with Bonnie Dune, right? So, I mean, yeah. you've been through that labeling fiasco of trying to like, you know, put a, a vintage on a fruit wine. Have you know what I'm talking about?
1: I do, yes. Um, I don't think you can vintage date fruit wines, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong. That's
0: yeah, yeah. No, I, I I, even cider, uh, as it turns out, I think. Um, No way. Really?
1: We made cider, and I'm I'm trying to visualize if there was a vintage date on it. I I have have some in my still have a few bottles in my cellar. I'll go and look, but I I, for the life of me, I can't recall whether we were able to vintage date it or not.
0: Yeah, the cider that I. Put out. I'm not sure because I, I also blended it some pomegranates, so I can't say if that's why it wasn't allowed or not. But the way I got around it was I called it Batch 2022, and they said, oh. "Oh, you can't put a you can't put a vintage date." And I said, "Oh no, that's not a vintage date. It's an internal, you know, organizing number that we use." <laughs> and they were like, "Fine." They just, I was like, "If you push back in the least little bit, they're like, whatever." Yeah. Um, so we, we have Batch 2022 on our cider and our other wines now. Um, but yeah, fun, fun hurdles. You know, fun like uh, just silliness that you have to do because of strange TTB laws. Um, going back to terroir again, I underneath all of this, why is it? Why is that kind of wine important to you? Like, why? I mean, why do we like? I mean, it is to me too. So I, you know, it's really. I just have you thought about that? Like, why? You know, sort of. Beneath it all, what's, what's important to you about that? Why is it better than the alternative?
1: Well, you know, maybe this is a little disingenuous on my part, maybe not. But when you're a winemaker, most of your young winemaker in the new world, most of your time is spent trying to figure out how to make killer wine. And, yeah. um, you know, what can you do? How can you make it better? How can you show the world how, how clever you are? And when you make a wine that's respectful of place, you really have, it really is humbling. You know, when you talk to a French winemaker and they say, you compliment them on what a brilliant winemaker they are, they say, no, no, it's not me. It's the site that makes the that makes the wine. And they truly believe it. They They truly, truly believe it. And that's what I aspire to do in California is have a site that basically has enough intrinsic intelligence itself that it doesn't require me to, to do the heavy lifting to make an, an exceptional wine. And I think it's just if I can sincerely have this attitude, develop this attitude of respect and confidence in the site. Um, and sort of learn how to do the do do less. You know, not have to show the world how, all the winemaking tricks that I I know. But you know, really have a largely hands-off approach. I think that's that would be incredibly satisfying to me at this stage in my life.
0: Is that a have you achieved a sense of? I don't know if it's humility, <laughs> is that, I mean, that's what I'm hearing a little bit or a sense of realizing you're in service of something bigger than yourself.
1: Well, I mean, that's, it's kind of, you know, I'm not a religious person, but it's really kind of in a sense, the religious ideal to understand that there's something larger and more important than yourself. And, you know, it's better to learn that late than never to learn it at all. So I'm, I'm kind of a little late to the game, but that, that is <laughs> a lesson that I'm, I'm trying to learn. you know one way or another
0: to what extent do things like sheep and biochar and compost um are you know like again these are things that we can create and implement um but you know i've seen some really incredible things where you know i've seen some vineyards who just go fully sheep and they don't use any outside inputs other than you know sheep poop and whatever you know whatever animals and birds that they run through the vineyard and they've seen grapes that had a certain morphology and you know specific characteristics uh, phenotypic characteristics change because of that like literally just start growing in a whole different way and that clearly in a sense expresses like a you know it there there is a sense of terroir that's coming out because of that um but you know is that something that they've created and I you know, just love your thoughts. I know we've already sort of gone over this a little bit, but I, I know you implement some of these things, uh, biochar, for example, and you have you know some thoughts maybe about that.
1: Well, you know, in a sense, everything you do is an intervention, and everything you do is a deformation of ter- terroir. I mean, just even growing grapes on the land is a deformation of terroir,
0: right? Right.
1: There's some definition, and I asked um, Hans Peter Schmidt about to what extent was was biochar a deformation of terroir? He said, absolutely it is, but it's nothing, say, compared to plowing your field, to disking your field, which is a profound deformation. So yes. everything we do is tweaks terroir in one way or another. Um, you just have to find that, you know, whether it's running sheep on your, sheep on your vineyard or cows or whatever it might be, um, but it, the question is, you know, how intrusive is it? is it? Is it in service of a larger ideal? And does it make does it ultimately make the wine more interesting and make the wine more sustainable? So in other words, for example, if you perform one intervention, like allowing sheep on your vineyard, and in so doing, it, you avoid the need to acidulate, you avoid the need to use pesticides, you avoid the need to you know, God only knows to fertilize or whatever else. Um, mm-hmm. And then, then then that intervention that you've made is, is is rather a benign one and a useful one and a defensible one, uh, most certainly. I mean, I yeah. I, don't, I don't know there's a court that, that will... <laughs> out of out of bounds for
0: using sleep. Yeah, yeah. No, I guess it's yeah. It's kind of like a, I guess I was going for perspective. I, I I feel like I tend to think a little differently than that. In that, I, I feel like I I wouldn't even want to use the term like it deforms terroir because I I just feel like human culture is so integrated. Like it, again, going back to that idea of our our separation being sort of like a an illusion and you know is it has there ever been a pure patch of dirt that was untouched by humans you know for very long and and it's just a matter of yeah like you said sort of how we touch it um being more the case rather than you know it, it has its own intrinsic thing uh, you know it's almost you know that idea that we're all very much interconnected and its health depends on us and our health depends on it kind of thing yeah or uh, you know its voice um in both cases too. Yep. One other question about terroir because I I've, yeah. I've become I've become fascinated by this idea that we've um, essentially divorced vines from their you know eternal partners of trees that like they evolved symbiotically in marriage with trees and you know in a modern in the modern vineyard system we've uh, essentially you know, cut them off from that very important relationship that they've had for millions of years, and what could be possible if we rejoined them in the vineyard? If we built a vineyard where trees were incorporated, and in fact, you know, part of the structure that that the vines grew on, and knowing that that adds a whole level of uh, complication and other things yeah. to our to our human ends, but. But have, do you have any thoughts about that? Have you considered that or seen that anywhere I've that you can talk?
1: Heard about it. I've never seen it, but I I know there are people who are doing it in France and in Italy and other places. Not not very many, and I think it's typically on um, either olive trees or oaks. Actually, maybe not oaks. Probably not the best choice. I'm trying to remember yeah. the kind of trees that are used, but it's... yeah. Uh, yeah. It's A very cool idea, it's, it's wildly impractical, I think, to do from scratch. Uh huh. I mean, this is when you know you've got more money than you know what to do with. You
0: know? <laughs> yeah,
1: but it's a, it's a great idea, and I, I, I hope there's one or two people out there who, who actually try this because I would, for one, love to see the result. Oh, you know, there's, I just Read about someone in, I think, Bolivia who's doing this.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There is a Bolivian, uh, yeah. The, I guess whatever you would call it, maybe vineyard is the wrong word now. I, I like the idea of a, a, a wine forest, or, you know, sort of like a wine garden or beer garden or something like that. But, well, you know, yeah, one
1: of the things that, you know, when I visited Peter Schmidt in Switzerland, you know, his vineyards don't look like vineyards. They look like gardens. And, um, mm. you know, his, he His interest in biochar is not simply speaking to make better wine, but he, what he likes about biochar is its ability to support a greater degree of biotic life. So in other words, more species, right. you know, more diversity. It just enhances the biotic capacity of the, of the site. And that seems really useful. For what yeah,
0: I mean... I hope nothing I've said makes it sound like I'm anti biochar because it affects terroir. I'm Absolutely, the opposite. I think it's a fantastic thing, and I strongly encourage it. Um, its use and do use it. And in our backyard here in our vineyard, have you seen benefits already from having used it? Can you talk about?
1: Well, I, I of course have not done a controlled experiment
0: because ah, got gotcha, right. yeah,
1: you right. Know, takes- yeah, because it's so cool. I thought, why not do it? For everything, you know, what I have right? To I is,
0: deprive part of your vineyard from yeah, it, right?
1: Point what? Um, it's like having kids. You know, one kid gets nourishing meals and the other kid doesn't. What do. like
0: in the service of science, so
1: science. We're after you know good science. Um, yeah. I have noticed that in growing row crops, biochar. We did, we did do experiments side by side with. Um, I'm, sure I'm not the only one, certainly, who's done that, but the veggies that we grew with biochar were infinitely not infinitely we were somewhat tastier and more delicious than the ones without the biochar. Mm. but this was Lovely. not a scientific experiment
0: right right <laughs> right I'm still waiting to be invited on the the global experiment of tasting wines um, from you know regeneratively organically farmed grapes to To see if they taste better than other wines, that's I'm volunteering that for that one, um, just to be you know one of the the testers, one of the guinea have pigs.
1: You, have you are you are you following what uh, Kelly Mulville is doing at Pisgah Ranch with his his vineyards?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and a big thanks to him for putting me in touch with you. Actually, yeah,
1: yeah, I think and, he doesn't have a controlled. Exp- I don't know that he has a controlled experiment, but. Um, potentially I think his his techniques are quite transformative potentially quite transformative
0: yes yes I I love that and and uh, I that's exactly where this idea of, of trees sort of not exactly where this idea of trees came from me but I was like I would love to do the same thing but with with trees um, where it's like a, a grazing vineyard that is also you know the, the the trellis posts are trees somehow. Um,
1: so the, the question is, what tree is going to support the greater the greatest degree of microbial life for the for the grapevine? I mean, are there trees that support symbiotic fungi, symbiotic mycorrhizae for grapes? Right. Yeah. I,
0: I mean, that's the great question. I think I. I mean, my thought is to do a different tree in each row. I've I've heard from some people. There's a there's a a, a guy who's not. Really a viticulturist, but he's doing it in the Midwest because he's a, a polyculture permaculturist, and um, he's 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 had mulberries. He he noticed the grapes really love mulberries, but he he likes using them in apple trees because it's there's I don't know it just works better the way he prunes the apple trees, and he can get a double crop. Um, and so yeah, I've 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 heard about it, uh, and and I guess that's going to be part of the fun. I I hope to get a chance to to do that actually to sort. Of explore and and i i also do want to do like a side by side where i have a block that's done just like kelly's uh vineyard and then a block where it's just like kelly's but they are trees and this would be for science so it would be you know done the same way in every other way you know same grapes and then made wine picked at the same time made wine the same way and then do a taste test to see if there is that difference that I, I think, I don't know. It's just seems that's my hypothesis is like, if we rejoin the, the vine to its, uh, its ancient partner, there might be some benefits in the soil and in other ways that we can't understand yet. Yeah. Um, so i'd I'd love to. I'd love to be the person to to check that out.
1: Whatever tree you use, make sure not to use a eucalyptus tree because. <laughs> yes. Talk about yes. information deformation of. Te- you end up with Martha's Vineyard Heights, Martha's Vineyard, which may not be the worst thing, but it does change the <laughs> wine significantly.
0: <laughs> That's funny. Didn't that one just get like a hundred points? Uh, the yeah, wine love- made from that. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I was at a vineyard recently where they had a, a beautiful old uh, sort of grove of bay laurel, um, the big old California bay laurel. And yeah. they were like, we 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 had to remove vines because that the oils from those were just like, it, you know, you could taste it. And yeah. it was crazy, like just being under these bay laurel. I mean, you can just smell them, you know, just it was so aromatic. Similarly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, this I I, I mean I, I I want with California I'd probably be doing something like fig and pomegranate or something like that where it's you know very drought tolerant and kind of thrives on adversity because um yeah, I don't I mean otherwise it's you know most of the landscape you don't really see trees unless you are in a river bottom here. Uh so it's like you, you know I don't want to create a, an irrigation system by planting like a maple for example or willow (laughs) on a california hillside well i want to go back to sort of wrap up with the winemaking that you're doing at the language of yes um can you can you just talk a little bit about that i'd love to you know just let people know about it but also just hear how that all developed and and why you're doing that
1: um i'm doing it for fun and profit (laughs) Um, like I I don't have enough projects to do, but it's, it's fun (laughs) and interesting. And, um, I think I still have something left unsaid about these grapes, um, that I've been working with for so long. Um, so it's an opportunity to, and it's an opportunity to work as a member of a team, which is, which is, you know, certainly a very unique team, um, unlike one that I've ever experienced before. And as I mentioned earlier, um, it's an opportunity to work with some new grape varieties and you know, develop new varieties. You know, Gallo has resources, if nothing else, um, that yeah. know, an incredible research arm, research uh, capacity. So I well beyond what I could do, achieve myself. So we were able to study, you know, do clonal trials and varietal trials and analytic trials that... Um, would otherwise not be possible. Mm.
0: Um,
1: and as I said, I'm, I want to make the world safe for Tiburin, um,
0: <laughs>
1: among other, yeah. and, and Sanso, of course. Um,
0: well, almost more important, and I should say, it's I, I, as I understand, you are farming populusum uh, organically, not certified. Is that correct?
1: correct? That is correct. Um, yeah.
0: And then the Rancho Real—is that what it is, Rancho Real?
1: Rancho Real, yes.
0: That one you are not—I mean, it's a Gallo-farmed vineyard, but you're helping push them in that direction, as I understand.
1: That is correct, exactly. Yes.
0: Um, can you talk about? I mean, since you're bringing up Tiburant, it, you know, I—I mean, my opinion, living in Los Angeles, is that there is not only like an openness, but like a thirst for new and different and you know unheard of grapes as well as other things uh is that do you are you experiencing that at all well
1: i live in a bubble so my world (laughs) is um definitely a world of oddball grape varieties i mean when somebody pours me a cabernet i think what an interesting exotic grape this is maybe somebody (laughs) this grape has potential <laughs> I mean, it really seems exotic or chardonnay my god it's like the most exotic because <laughs> it's so
0: seldom you mean that it's you so seldom, actually yeah. <laughs> that's funny yeah um well i mean have you is it hard then to talk about california generally what you've seen in terms of uh, where where california is now what you know i don't know
1: talk... i mean I, I don't know what young people i mean yeah, I don't know what young people are drinking these days. Um, uh, I know they're drinking cocktails and crazy wines. Um, I mean, the problem with the no, with novelty. I mean, I love novelty as much as the next person. The problem with novelty is that it becomes an addiction, and mm. from a brand building standpoint, it's hard to it's hard to. Build upon something if everyone if all everyone wants is something new. So as wonderful as your product might be, they'll say, "Oh yeah, that was nice. What's the what's the yeah. next thing? What's the very next?" Right. Thing? So yeah. to that extent, I mean, if you want to build a brand, as as some of us still old-fashioned folks do, um, you do need something. This odd concept called brand loyalty, and I think that only emerges with a population of people who are interested in delving deeper into what you're doing. So in other words, they're, they're just, it's not a one-off. They want to know more about what you're doing. They want to touch it, taste it, visit it and follow it and follow its evolution. I mean, that's, that's what actually what makes, I think my project interesting because it's not, it's, it's going to be constantly changing for as long as I live, it's going to continue to grow and evolve. So I, I want people to be around, you know, have an interest in sticking around for the sequel to see what what happens next.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. It is very difficult to chase novelty, uh, especially in a in a um, in a I guess a creative field that's tied to the natural rhythms, which aren't f- as fast as appetites. Um, yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, and it and it does become that thing of, and I think you're right about that addiction to novelty. Um, well, what I what is the best way people could get to know your brand better and and you know find out more and taste what you're doing?
1: Well, from the in the language of yes side of things, they can go to the language of yes website and sign up for the newsletter or the just check, you know, just check things out on the site and get the, you know, the periodic letters, screeds that I write. And then ditto the Popola Shum website. Um, Send me a note if you're interested in visiting Popola Shum. Um, I can arrange that quite
0: often. I mean, again, it's, it's
1: it's a work in progress. It's not, you know, there isn't a winery on site. So it's, 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 you have experience. to be
0: interested in in vines and the, and that process right
1: and yes correct and be able to tough it out a little bit we don't have a, we don't have a lot of amenities we have one bathroom which is about 800 feet away from everything or 1200 feet away from everything else so
0: okay <laughs> great all right this is byOt bring your own toilet paper yeah um,
1: <laughs> something like that <laughs> you, you just watch the poison oak just be careful of the poison oak is, is the only advice I would give
0: <laughs> got it that is hilarious I was just talking about that today yeah, um, yeah learning how to learn what's poison oak by the hard way yeah, is <laughs> by hard. choosing that's, it as toilet the, paper
1: that's the hardest way of all that's
0: what's <laughs> uh, well, great. Well, thank you so much, Randall. It's really just a pleasure to talk to you, and I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts about all this. It's uh, it's fun to pick your brain, and uh, you know I, I, yeah, it's uh, just a real pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure,
1: Adam. No problem. Anytime.
0: Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And if you did, and would like to support this podcast, please do. There is a Patreon link in the show notes where you can subscribe with a monthly very low subscription to add monetary support or please subscribe on your feed whatever wherever you listen to this podcast subscribe and follow this podcast so that you will automatically download it when each new episode comes out that's one of the few metrics that we can measure to see the support and and listenership of this and Otherwise, if you're already listening, subscribe, support, whatever, uh, just a long-time listener, haven't done anything, please uh, do a review. If you would, any positive review with five stars and a nice word <laughs> is fantastic and helpful and uh, really improves the algorithmic performance of this podcast. So thank you so much.